want to pose a question as we begin. Have you ever wondered about the value of the human race in the eyes of God? After all, man was first formed from the dust of the ground, we're told in Scripture, by the everlasting Almighty Creator. As the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. And life experience tells us that tragedies happen every day all around the world. People are dying. Illnesses, wars, attacks, natural disasters, on and on we could go. And then we read accounts in Scripture. Read accounts in the Bible like our passage of Scripture out of Genesis for last week. The account of the flood when nearly all the human race was wiped off the face of the earth under the divine plan and by a sovereign God who is over all things. Given these experiences, is life human life, really valuable in the eyes of God. And Scripture is clear. Genesis chapter 9, our text for this morning, is abundantly clear that life is valuable to God. Life is sacred to God. And we'll see this morning that since life is sacred to God, we must value life. And seek to live a God-honoring life. Since life is sacred to God, we must seek to live a God-honoring life, God-honoring life and to value all life. The truth that we'll see from God's Word in Genesis chapter 9 this morning. So I do want to invite you to open up a Bible and to look with me at Genesis chapter 9. I do hope that you'll look at... God's Word with me, whether that's on a tablet or a smartphone or uh, a visible printed copy of God's Word, serving as a reminder that when we come together as the church, when we come together as the people of God, we don't come just to, to listen to some music or we don't come just to hear a motivational talk or to hear from some preacher guy. No, we come... To hear from the Lord. So let's recognize what it is that we're doing today and every day. That whose words it is that we're reading and whose truth it is that we are seeking. So let's go to God in prayer and ask Him to lead us. Ask Him to guide us as we jump into His Word together for the next few minutes this morning. Father, we do thank You for this day. We thank You for every day. We thank You for another weekly opportunity to gather with your people to look at your word, Lord, in your name, Lord, we desire to hear from you today. We desire for you to speak to us by your spirit through your written word, so Lord, we ask that you do so now, and it's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things, amen. Let's look together at Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. God's word reads this way. 
Then God blessed Noah and his sons. Remember, this is right after the account of the flood. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. God gives people responsibility for producing, preserving, and protecting life. In His plan, God gives people responsibility for producing, for preserving, and for protecting life. Clearly, we see here in Genesis chapter 9, this account right after the account of God's judgment on the earth through the great act of a flood. We see that God does indeed value life. He takes life seriously. That life is sacred before God. That life is important to God. And just as God had previously done some time before this, commanded Adam, the first man, to be fruitful, fill the earth in Genesis chapter 1. Now, He commands Noah and his sons to do the same. Essentially, starting over with the human race. In this way, As if Noah is a a second Adam. Noah, his sons, his family, the only family that had been spared God's judgment through this flood, simply an act of God's grace, was now instructed, now charged, twice charged, verse 1 and again in verse 7, to to be fruitful, to fill the earth, to reproduce on the earth, as God's only image bearers on the face of the earth, to, to once again fill the earth with other image bearers of God, with other people for the glory of God. And just as we saw earlier in Genesis chapter 1, that one of the marks of being a creature made in God's image was to represent God on the earth, to have dominion over the other creatures. We see that same trait here re-emphasized in Genesis chapter 9. But not only are they to be fruitful and increase in number on the earth, but they're to, to exercise dominion as God's representatives over all the other creatures of the earth. And, and here we read that at this point, the animal kingdom, the animal world was also opened up as food for human beings, food for men and women on the earth. And as a result, the animal world would begin to fear mankind. We can't blame them. You and I would do the same thing if we wondered if we would be the next mystery meat in someone's crock pot or on someone's big green egg. 
you would begin to, to fear the human race as well. And generally speaking, this is true in the animal world today. It's true of most creatures, except perhaps those that reverse the order and, and see us as potential food. In fact, I saw a news headline this morning, I believe, about a boy in Arkansas, of all places, that had fallen in the jaguar cage at the Little Rock Zoo and was in stable condition, in good condition, but jaguars don't typically see three-year-olds as a threat to their existence. Similarly, just the other week, a few weeks ago, I got a call from my, my wife in the middle of the day, and she said, Chris, there's an armadillo in the front yard, and it's digging up the grass in the front yard, of course, that's, you know, unfortunate trait of armadillos to dig up the grass. But this was not just any grass. This was brand new sod that I had recently put down and spent money on and spent no telling how many dollars on watering, trying to get it to take root and, and become established in a couple of bare spots in the yard. So I did what I think any of us would do. I said, get rid of that armadillo. Get that armadillo out of the yard. And she said, well, how? And I want to say, well, Take a shovel and knock him out of the yard. But that's a little bit too inhumane for my lovely wife. And so I said, well, go out there and yell at it. Distract it. Do something. So she says, okay. Get off the phone. She goes out and tries to scare this armadillo off. And if you've ever been around armadillos, I don't know what it is. They don't, they're not scared of us. They, they, they can't hear or they can't see. It explains why so many get hit on the road, I'm sure. But... So, to no avail, nothing happens. A few minutes go by, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes later, I get a call. And she said, well, you never guess what happened. This armadillo left our yard at some point and ventured into one of our neighbor's yards. And I'm not going to mention who, because we do have some church members that live in our vicinity. <laughs> and next thing Ashley hears is a pow, 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 pow. <laughs> And she said, well, I guess our neighbor's packing. <laughs> so that's one way to get rid of an armadillo. But as people, as image bearers of God, we are responsible for producing and preserving and protecting life on earth. And we're not to to take life casually. We're not to, to take life without caution, even animal life. And this is communicated here in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 9 through the command to the people in Noah's day not to eat meat that still had its lifeblood in it. The reason being because the life, the, the blood in an animal represented the life in the eyes of God before the Creator and God had Reserved the blood in the meat for another purpose. A unique role. The role of atonement. And we read in Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites. None of you may eat blood. Nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. And those of us that. To know the full story of 
the Bible, the full story of Scripture, know that these animal sacrifices for the purpose of atonement in that day were only a picture anticipating the fulfillment of the greatest sacrifice, the greatest and final act of atonement, the blood of Christ that was poured out for our sins, the removal of our sins. God holds us as people to a higher standard than the rest of creation. Even more than animal life, God values human life. Values human life as creatures that are made in His image, as the crown of His creation. And we see this in verses 5 and 6 where God demands an accounting for those that take the life of another human. A principle that's practiced in Israel's day and a principle that's been practiced in many days and many cultures around the world. That God takes life seriously. God values His creation. Values human life. And he calls us as His people to produce, to preserve, and to protect life. And thankfully, He doesn't leave us on our own to, to carry out His charge. The only reason that we are able to even begin to carry out that charge is because it represents who God is. It represents His aims. And we see that in the verses that follow. We see that He values life and He works to sustain life. God promises to sustain life. That's the truth that we see in the following verses, verses 8 through 17. So look back with me at Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. It's this theme of God valuing life, of life being sacred before God is continued here in these following verses after the opening charge to Noah and his sons. It's continued through this covenant, this unconditional and unilateral covenant that is established by God, a covenant of grace to protect and preserve the human race post the flood. It's a covenant that's given to Noah and his descendants. Now, who are the descendants of Noah? All of us. A covenant that God has made with us, He's made with the human race. Doesn't doesn't even depend here on our obedience. Certainly, if we 
abide by God's instructions. and We're able to live and to enjoy this covenant. But this is a covenant of grace to the human race. Common grace is extended to all of humanity. Human race as a whole. That they would never again be wiped out in this way as an act of God's judgment in the way that they were during the flood. And he gives a sign as a symbol of this covenant that he is making with humanity. Verse 13, I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it, God says, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. A sign of this covenant of grace that God makes with the human race. Those of us that know this story, are aware of God's grace, ought to never look at a rainbow in the same way again. We ought to see a rainbow as a symbol that God is showing as an act of His grace. Not judging us, not wiping us off the face of the earth as we deserve. Just as people deserved in Noah's day. The text is clear here that a rainbow serves as a reminder to God. There's more than once that when God sees the rainbow, He says, I will remember the covenant that I have made. God doesn't need reminders like we do. Most of us, a lot of us, we put sticky notes all over our desk and set alarms on our phones and whatever else to to help us remember certain things that we're to do. But God is omniscient, meaning He knows all things. He doesn't need to be reminded of, of what He is supposed to do what he desires to do. So why this language? This language is used often in Scripture, often in the Old Testament, the idea of God remembering. It's much more than just the idea of recalling information. The Bible speaks of God remembering and speaking of Him acting in accordance with His faithfulness. Acting in accordance with His character and who He is. We sang earlier, David led us in singing earlier about God remembering His people, God remembering His children. And the idea there is that God, act toward us in accordance with Your grace. Act with, toward us in accordance with Your faithfulness. And God is sovereign. He is faithful. He is over all. And He makes this covenant here in Genesis chapter 9 with the human race, never to destroy life and in the same fashion, across the earth, widespread destruction. Don't miss this. It's being communicated here. The picture here in Genesis 9 is of a time of peace and preservation under the sovereign hand of God after this act of judgment, which anticipates and the grand picture of God's Word, a time of peace, a time of eternal peace, a time of eternal life and preservation after 
God's final judgment of sin. This common grace that God gave is giving today still abides by today in the preservation of the human race only foreshadows the saving grace that all who know and follow Jesus Christ, that all have trusted in Jesus Christ will one day experience. And we look forward to that day. Since life is sacred to God, we must value life and seek to live a God-honoring life. And in the final portion of Genesis chapter 9, there's this unusual story, this odd story that describes characters dishonoring God and other characters honoring God. If we had the time in our series, we would do a whole separate message on this particular passage, but instead we're just going to look at it for a few minutes together this morning. So look back as we conclude Genesis chapter 9 beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. These two verses, really just background material uh, to what we're about to read. Background material for the episode here in chapter 9, and also background material for chapters 10 and 11. Now here's the story, verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. And they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years. And then he died. Interesting what we read in the Bible sometimes, isn't it? Here we have the story of Noah, pillar of faith. Notice how the Bible never glosses over the sin of those that we regard as pillars of the faith. Noah, Moses, Abraham, David, Peter, Paul, among others. But Noah gets drunk, lying uncovered in his tent. One son, Ham, comes in, sees his father, then leaves and goes out and tells his brothers. His brothers very carefully cover his father back up. The result is a curse pronounced on Ham's descendants, Ham's son, Canaan, and a blessing pronounced on Shem and Japheth. Now, we cannot understand this little episode, this little story, without understanding the a bit about the historical and cultural context in which it takes place. In that day, in fact, in the ancient world, ever since the time of the fall, nakedness was a shameful thing. Represented being vulnerable, represented being undignified. 
coverings, provided boundaries for the human race in a fallen world. To be uncovered was to invite potential exploitation was a dishonoring thing. So here, Ham comes in and sees his father in this way. Situation of shame, not just because he's uncovered, but because he's drunk as well. Dishonors his father. Seeing him in the state, but more than just seeing him in the state, by doing nothing about it. Leaves the tent. Rather than taking steps to mend the situation, he, in essence, tells his brothers and invites them to, to, to be a part of this dishonoring, this humiliation of his father. And then the text and the story is very clear and tells us that his two brothers were very meticulous, very careful, then to take every step to mend the situation, avoiding on, dishonoring their father and honoring him in this way. So in short, Ham acts with pride and a sense of moral abandonment, whereas Shem and Japheth act with integrity, moral integrity and humility. And God expects and requires and blesses the latter among his people. God requires people to live with moral integrity and humility to experience his blessing. So Noah comes out and gives this oracle theme of blessing and cursing, a common theme in scriptures, particularly in the book of Genesis. Gives this curse on Canaan. Ham's son, intentionally told by the author twice, verse 18 and verse 22, that Canaan is Ham's son. So why? Why is he cursing his son? Why is he cursing his descendants? A curse, an oracle. It's not binding in, unless it was the Lord who carried it out. Unless the Lord brought it to pass. And What I think is taking place here is that Noah is anticipating the sinful attitude and the sinful character and the sinful actions that will be characterized by Ham's descendants. That they would, like their father, like their ancestor Ham, be characterized by sin in this way. And we know this to be true in history. We know this to be true in biblical history as the Bible reveals the depravity of Ham's descendants. The depravity of those who came to be known as the Canaanites. And we read about them in Leviticus chapter 18 when we read God's instructions, His moral instructions regarding relationships that He gives through Moses to His people. It reads this way in Leviticus chapter 18 beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Where I am bringing you, do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Verse 6. No one is to approach any close relative 
to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Verse 8, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. If you're sleeping, you're awake now. We're not going to read the rest of this chapter, the rest of this list, but I would encourage you to, to get a glimpse of how specific these laws are that God is giving the nation of Israel through Moses regarding relationships, and specifically immoral relationships. What's the point of this? I mean, this is, this is Alabama, but these are not things that, that we would be so prone to want to do or to do. I'm just kidding, by the way. Arkansas is just as bad, if not much worse. So why? Why is God being so specific here? These details of these relationships. We get a glimpse, and get a hint. We see the reason at the beginning and the end of this list. Verse 3, Leviticus chapter 18. What did it say? It said, you must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Where I am bringing you, do not follow their practices. Skip to the end of that chapter, verse 24. We read, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. Because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. In other words, we get a glimpse through these specific instructions to the nation of Israel. Just how immoral, just how depraved, just how wicked, just how sinful the Canaanites really were. And so what we read here in this episode, in the end of Genesis chapter 9, anticipates what is going to take place through the offspring of each of these three sons' descendants. It sets the stage for what is going to happen, what is going to take place. And it's a reminder to Israel, it's a reminder to the Israelites offspring of Shem that when they enter into the promised land when they enter into the land of Canaan that God has already gone before them and that God has already subjugated the Canaanites descendants of Ham for them this is an oracle a promise that was realized that came about during the time of the conquest when Israelites, descendants of Shem, had help from the descendants of Japheth, Indo-Europeans, as they defeated and conquered the Canaanites, descendants of Ham, and was realized in that way. But perhaps we could say today that even broader than that, even on another level, the blessing that we begin to read about here through the, the line of Shem, which would include Abraham and ultimately include Jesus, would be extended to the Gentiles, some of the descendants of Shem and Japheth across the earth. Folks, since life is sacred to God, We must value life and seek to live a God-honoring life. And because life is sacred to God, let's value all human life. Value all human life. Whether in the womb or in a nursing home, life is valuable to God. Whether in Birmingham or Mexico City, life is valuable to God. 
But living in Mountain Brook or living under the bridge of the Red Mountain Expressway, life is valuable to God. Whether in America, Asia, or Africa, life is valuable to God. And since life is valuable to God, since life is sacred to God, let's value all human life. And since God provides for us and sustains us by His grace, let's acknowledge God's provision of life. Let's acknowledge God's provision of life. He is the one who created us. He is the one who sustains us day after day after day, providing for our needs, extending His grace to to keep us from judgment, to keep us from worldwide destruction, as was the case in the days of the flood. He is the one that extends a saving grace, extended to Whosoever will come, extended to humanity through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ to be restored, to be reconciled, to be right before God and to receive eternal life in the eyes of God. So let's acknowledge God's provision of life and let's trust in God's providence over life. Trust in God's providence over your life. God is sovereign. He's eternal. He's everlasting. He's in control. And He is caring. He cares for you. He loves you. He loves us. He knows what's best. Far greater, far more powerful, and far wiser than any of us are. And we ought to thank Him for His provision. We ought to thank Him for His providence. When was the last time that we thanked Him for for who He is and the way that He regards us? As his creatures. Good times. Bad times. Illnesses. Tragedies. Even in death. Let's trust in God's providence over our lives. And lastly. Because God requires. And demands moral integrity and humility. Let's pursue righteousness. Let's pursue righteousness. Let's pursue the things of God. Just as Paul told young Timothy, it's recorded in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Let's flee the evil desires of youth, or flee the desires of the flesh, or flee the temptations of the world. Let's flee these things and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Because God expects us to live with moral integrity, to live in humility, let's pursue righteousness, all for our good and God's glory. Since life is sacred to God, we must value life and seek to live a God-honoring life. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for our time in your word this morning. We thank you for the truths that are found in your word. We thank you for the depth of your word. Lord, I pray that You've been pleased with us thus far this morning as we gather to worship and hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to instruct us, that you would move us, that you would lead us as we desire to live as your people, as we seek to follow after you. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified among us now. And that's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.